This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and I find myself during this uh, in cycle C uh, wanting to preach on all the lessons because they don't come up very much except once every three years, and uh, they're very timely in many ways. So I'm going to do that once again, preach on uh, the reading from Acts, the reading from Revelation, and the reading from uh, John's Gospel. Uh, just, rem- just to remind ourselves, uh, Easter, the themes uh, of Easter move us always towards an understanding of the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy itself. So uh, the light of Christ, the rehearsal of the history of salvation, in this case, uh, the progress of the early New Testament church and how it's appropriating the resurrection message and how also that... Um, we have an emphasis on baptism and the Holy Eucharist. But today, the three great themes are radical inclusion, a new vision for the world, and the Savior's commandment to the disciples and apostles in the upper room at the Last Supper to love one another. And this is all about this The first three weeks of Easter uh, were rehearsals of resurrection appearances, principally. And the last weeks now, moving up to the Ascension and then to Pentecost, are about how the primitive church began to appropriate the resurrection message and how it, in some sense, uh, said, this is how we're going to do it. These are the issues that have come up for us, and we now want to... Uh, see how we can uh, understand them in our lived experience as the people of God. So in the book of Acts today, we have Peter, who is in Joppa. Remember last week, Joppa, 35 miles west of Jerusalem, a suburb of Tel Aviv. He's in Joppa, and he has a vision, or he's in a trance, And in his vision, he sees uh, a blanket and all of a sudden all these different kinds of animals. And God says to him, get up and kill and eat. And Peter looks at these animals and he says, "Uh, Lord, I can't do this in so many words. These animals are unclean. They they violate the dietary rules of, of pious Jews. So I can't kill them and eat them. And God says in the course of this vision, what God has made clean, you must not profane. What God has made clean, you must not profane. And so at the end, Peter concludes, this, by the way, is a defense to the apostles who've now jumped him on this issue. Because they said he noticed, they've noticed that he is eating with Gentiles. And he's not observing the dietary laws. And so he concludes by saying, God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to eternal life. The apostles have two problems with this. The first one is that they believe that Peter took it upon himself to make this decision and this change without consulting. And so they're angry about that. And 
they're also angry about the fact that he has done maybe the unpardonable thing that he's eaten with them. Now, you'll, we'll read uh, other times in Paul. Paul and Peter had a, a sort of an uneven relationship. And when uh, Paul was uh, with Peter, um, Peter did not observe the dietary rules until the Jerusalem contingent came out there. And, and then he withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul jumped all over him about it. So this is a big controversy in the early Christian church. But it's about who's in and who's out. And this issue keeps coming up in the life of the church. By the way, the decision to preach the gospel to the Gentiles makes the ordination of women to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church the inclusion of lesbian and gay people, the blessing of their uh, relationships and their unions look like amateur night. I'm serious. This was big, the decision to do this. We've gone through this before. Remember, Gentile in the, in the Greek New Testament is ethne. So we're, we're, there's a word we get from that, right? Ethne, ethne. It means in translation, those people. Those people. So Peter was sitting with those people and eating with those people. And in fact, encouraging those people to be part of their common life as Christians. And so this reading is about um, a predicate that the early church uh, accepted. And that is, what God has made clean, you must not profane. Have we lived up to this? Have we brought greater sympathy and compassion in our relational life? Have we done it with regard to economically disadvantaged people? Have we done it to people from different cultures and backgrounds that uh, are very hard to, to uh, accept for many people? You know, the last hymn that we sang today is one of the great classics of the social gospel. Walter Russell, or Russell, Walter, Walter Russell Bowie was the, the guy who wrote those words. And every time I sing that hymn, I think to myself, well, there's more work that needs to be done without a doubt. But thank God that we have the support from the biblical witness to do this. Peter, you know, I think about Peter as kind of every man in the New Testament in some ways. He's uneven, and he is credulous, and he's enthusiastic and then doesn't back things up. But here he was willing, through this insight, however we understand the vision or being in a trance or uh, in prayer, this comes to him. It is clear that this is something that we need to do and to accept those people. And so we have this continuous struggle. You know, a lot of progress has been made in some areas, but there's more to do. And that's what this reading is about, so that we know that as the church began to appropriate the resurrection faith, 
it began to see that it should always err on the side of inclusion. Most people have focused on other things. I got to thinking about this. You know, it, we're, I've been talking a lot about heaven and about what the purpose of the Christian life is, whether it's so that you'll go to heaven and you'll do this, and that's what counts. I think Ernest said a few weeks ago, once you've accepted Jesus, you're fine, but the rest of your life is avoiding certain landmines so that you won't uh, jeopardize your post-mortem bliss, right? So this is what you think the Christian life is. Well, if that's true, if it's true, it's like the Secretary of the Interior. I don't know whether it was under Reagan or one of the presidents, Watt, whatever his name was. He was a Pentecostal Christian. Well, he said in some interview, if, you know, we're all going to go to heaven or God's going to come down here and we're all going to get uh, involved in a big ethnic uh, earth cleansing and then we'll get to heaven or not, why should we worry about whether the forests survive? Why do we need to worry about that? Why should we worry about anybody who suffers? There is no reason to do this. If your own personal salvation is what counts, right? It doesn't matter. So this is what we've got in the book of Acts, that it does matter. And God's purposes are that we invite everyone, even those people, into God's saving embrace. And that's what this is all about. And Peter took the heat from the other apostles in order that he assert this great and powerful truth. I didn't mention that this follows on something very important in the book of Acts, and that is the conversion of Cornelius the centurion, who was a Gentile, and his family. <clears throat> And by virtue of that, that was a powerful thing that occurred. And what he witnessed and why it helped him change his mind was he realized that these people were the possessors of the same spirit of God that he was. And so he has this dream or this vision and he begins to see, well, if Cornelius the centurion is in then it strikes me that other people like him uh, are in too. And we should be on the side of that. Now, in the book of Revelation we have today, remember the, 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 the uh, theory that I'm advancing to you, that I accept, is we are reading about things mystically, the way they're described in poetic terms, visionary terms, we're reading about events that have already occurred in history. The book of Revelation is not about some future prediction of what's going to happen. It's about what has happened and how we cope with the results. To amaze your friends, you can refer to this in its ultra, ultra scholarly way as realized eschatology. <laughs> right now and not yet so it has something to do with what has already happened and what now as we live into that knowledge and learn how to make sense of this and to survive and to see in it uh, some sources of uh, an increased amount of practical wisdom uh, about living in the world we can do that 
So once again, in this reading from Revelation, we have, I've been emphasizing this during this cycle because in all of the readings sometimes, we get liturgical fragments, little liturgical fragments or pieces of liturgical poetry or hymns that give us an idea of what was going on uh, in the worship of the New Testament church. And we have one today that follows on the testimony of the author about seeing a new heaven and a new earth. So in Christian art, new heaven and new earth is usually painted like something up there. We're having a new heaven and a new earth. And the writer means new heaven and new earth here. That heaven and earth are mixed up together. People want to think of heaven as here, and we're the earth here. So we're zooming here, as opposed to seeing that heaven and earth are together. So God, who is in heaven, is here with us and brings us into heaven. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We read that in another place last week. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Now in this, uh, we have some lines from the Orthodox liturgy and the funeral liturgy that we use even in our own church. But he's describing the circumstances. And also implicit in this text is this. What is our role in cooperating with the knowledge that there is a new heaven and a new earth that is both here and yet to come in its fullness. And for some reason, God needs all of us to be part of that, bringing heaven and earth, a new heaven and a new earth, understanding it in a deeper and fuller way. And so this passage is about uh, how God will dwell with his people. This is what the Genesis creation account is about, how God now dwells with his people. So the creation story about the first seven days of creation is a story about the building of the temple. And so in the temple, who's in the temple? God is in the temple. And we go in and visit God in the temple at least once a week on the Sabbath. We're with God in the temple. God is present in the temple. And you can transfer that and understand that in one sense, God is everywhere. So we need to know that. I didn't say God is in everything. Let's avoid that. That gets complex. But God is present in the world. God is with us in the world. And this is the affirmation. And more to the point, you and I have a role to play in this new heaven and new earth, a transformed world. And I think through history, at its best, we have seen examples of how people have cooperated with the idea of a transformed world and the positive effects that attach to that uh, as we do it with some intention. In John's Gospel, we have today uh, Jesus at the Last Supper, and it tells us Judas had departed from the, the Last Supper. And so Jesus is now describing, it's one of these things where when I was younger, and even when I was first in seminary, all this glorifying me and you and me and thou and you and that. You know, I was getting about 10% of this. 
So Reginald Fuller, who I've told you about before, one of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, uh, in a commentary on this, said, you know, this could be understood better if you accept the view of many biblical scholars that this was also a hymn. And so the way it is in the text, just, you know, like regular sentences, if you make what Jesus says here, it's at least relatively easy, a little bit easier to understand. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So for the writer of John's gospel, what is about to happen is Jesus will leave the Last Supper. He's going to get arrested and he's going to be tried and he will, the passion will occur. He will die on the cross. He will rise again from the dead and he will ascend into heaven. So the glorification of Jesus, which by extension is the glorification of God, is now going to occur. And what he's also saying to his disciples and teaching them now is that they're part of this process of glorification. And so they are bathing in the glory of God. So in technical terms, which may not be too usable to a lot of people, this is the great gospel about glory about God's glory. So Jesus is at the Last Supper and he's saying to the disciples in the midst of coming to terms with this very uh, powerful but complicated idea that there's a, there's a thing they need to do now in his absence when he goes. And that's going to be soon. They need to love one another. And he's speaking in one sense in a very narrow way. He's speaking about how the disciples, the apostles, must love one another. This isn't something about loving everybody, although by extension it will be. But it's love one another, and how do we, in, in sacramental terms and uh, terms of a sign, do this? And the way we do this is through the Eucharist. Eucharist means thanksgiving. So every time you and I participate in the Eucharist, we are uh, loving one another. And we learn something about how uh, to do that. My great mentor, Murray Hammond, said to me one time, he said, you know, it's an old cliche, David, but you don't have to like everybody, but you have to love everybody. And you will discover that if you do this, or try to do this, God will provide you the graces to be able to love the people you serve. And one of my colleagues some years ago, Ernest may remember this, said that um, she, she was a rector of a parish here in, in this diocese. She said, you know, sometimes when I am in the, the parish and, and dealing with difficult people, it's so rare for us to deal with difficult people in the, in the ministry. This is, why it's, <laughs> this is why it's such a challenge. She said, I'll be at a meeting or some kind of a gathering, and uh, this person will be sitting quietly, and their face 
uh, is in repose. And the light will shine on their face in this condition of relaxation and sitting. And she said to, to us, she said, I, I realized for a split second this is how God must see this person all the time. This is how God must see this person all the time. So when you think about loving one another, that is a powerful spiritual aid to being able to do that. I've never forgotten that, and I, I, I believe it's real wisdom. And I bet it's true for you if you've thought about it in the past, even for a split second. That's what Jesus means when he says that we must love one another. So this week, give thanks for God's inclusive love, acceptance, and forgiveness for the continuous work of the Holy Spirit to make us see the true nature of inclusiveness in every age. Give thanks for the possibility to be cooperators with God in the new heaven and the new earth. And finally, give presence, uh, thanks for the presence of the glorified Christ in the Eucharist and for the strength that provides us to be God's people in the world. Amen.